Welcome to the Public Morality. In light of the coronavirus, we continue our series on presidential leadership in crisis by examining the 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. When Lincoln assumed the presidency on March 4, 1861, seven southern states had already seceded from the Union. The Civil War, simply stated, was America's greatest crisis. To discuss Lincoln's leadership in crisis, I'm joined by Todd Brewster, Brewster's author of Lincoln's Gamble, the tumultuous six months that gave America the Emancipation Proclamation and changed the course of the Civil War. Todd Brewster, welcome to The Public Morality. Well, thank you, Byron. I'm very happy to be here. You know, it's easy through folklore uh, to believe the Abraham Lincoln uh, that we know today, came to office in 1861, saw that some southern states had already seceded, took immediate and decisive action to win the war in 1865. Uh, we know that's not true, but is it fair to suggest that the Lincoln in 1861 was not the leader in crisis that he would be, eventually become? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I absolutely it's fair. I think even he would probably agree with it if we were around to, to, to hear that question. Lincoln um, uh, arrived with a crisis already in full uh, flame. Um, and I, I don't think he knew any more than anyone else how to solve it. It took him a couple of years, really, to adjust to all the many multifaceted aspects of the situation that he faced. And I, 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 this, the, the point of my book, Lincoln's Gamble, is that he was a human being. He, too, needed to adjust to all the forces and make a decision. Um, so the, 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 the way that he was when he arrived was not the way that he was two years later. He grew. He developed. And that's what you look for in a leader, I think, is that kind of growth and development. You know, and, and that would also, uh, I would throw in there, those that um, historian Doris Kearns Goodwin's coined as the team of rivals, they were not exactly enamored with Lincoln's leadership skills in 1861. Oh, no. I mean, in fact, they, I think they thought of him as kind of a pure politician. They thought he was suspect. Um, you know, he wasn't an abolitionist. I mean, uh, somebody like Seward, um, uh, um, you know, was, was suspicious of him. Uh, um, Wells, uh, Gideon Wells was suspicious of him. They thought he was he was a compromise candidate. He was not somebody that embodied the sort of anti-slavery momentum that was happening in the Republican Party. I think that that um, they they you know wondered if he could actually command the moment. I mean, similar to Roosevelt when Roosevelt Franklin Roosevelt, I'm thinking of here during the Great Depression. I mean, he was not exactly uh, our our most ideologically driven or even our most intellectual president, Roosevelt. Um, he was in very many ways a social, uh, a, um, a social climber, uh, 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 somebody from the aristocracy. And, I, you know, who was it? Oliver Wendell Holmes said he was um, uh, uh, a second-rate mind with a first-rate temperament about Roosevelt. Uh, and that wrote, but that Roosevelt temperament was so important to taking us through the Great Depression. And similarly, I think Ro uh, Lincoln's uh, temperament was perfect for taking us through the our nation's greatest crisis, which was the Civil War. Now, now we just pause right there in 1861, and you, th you sort of reflect on that. Are there lessons there that aided Lincoln's growth as a leader going forward? Yeah, there are. I, I think that there are lessons um, uh, that he learned uh, being thrust into the leadership 
And then there are lessons that came from his making some very wise decisions. You mentioned um, Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, a wonderful book, a Team of Rivals, with one of the great titles, I think, of any of any Lincoln book. Um, he understood that there were limitations to his own knowledge, that he had to rely upon expertise. Um, he also understood that he needed, if he had a split party, which he did, um, he had a party that was very much divided, just like our political parties are divided today. And he knew that the only way to have the full force of the of the party behind him was to pick sort of constituents from all facets and make them work together. And finally, I think he understood that um, one of the great moral lessons he could he could uh, put before the country and before those who were working with him was that there was something greater than their own interests. And so by putting a, a team of rivals in place, he was essentially saying, look, shed your ego, come work for me, let's go for a united purpose. You know, it's interesting listening to give that last answer. We, we did a show um, uh, a couple weeks back on presidential leadership with John F. Kennedy, um, who, was, who was in crisis for a thousand days in, diff in different arenas. And, and we're doing Lincoln today, and we're going to do one on Franklin Roosevelt. But it seems to me sort of a commonality is that the, the, the presidential leadership that we look at it and we applaud, um, there has to be some failure that goes with that before they become the people that they are. Would that be? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, and, and with failure comes humility, right? Um, I, I believe that Doris Kearns Goodwin did write a book called Leadership that took from um, several of her, of her favorite subjects. That would be Roosevelt and Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt, I believe, also. Um, and, and, and one of the things that she found was in each case there were monumental failures early in life that helped to shape these, these uh, great leaders. I, you know, I believe that the greatest uh, virtue is humility, the greatest Christian virtue is humility, and the greatest leadership field, uh, uh, um, trait is also humility. Understanding that, that there are limits to your own knowledge, that you have to rely upon others, I think is really crucial. Uh, understanding that you're not, um, that your role as a leader is not to be God. Your role as a leader is to lead others who are as mortal as you are. Hmm. Uh, and, and then I want you to talk briefly about uh, the first half of, of, of uh, 1862, from January to May. And I'll specifically, you know, there were the strains on the war that were also taking a mental toll on Lincoln. Uh, and he also had some personal tragedy. Um, with the death of his son Willie, how did that did that play into forming Lincoln, who he was at all? Oh, of course, it completely did. Both things did. Um, uh, you know, for one, uh, let's go with the war to begin with. The war uh, at the outset, Lincoln's motivation is that he wants to hold the Union together. He says he doesn't really care whether it's a Union that has slavery or doesn't have slavery. He wants to hold the Union together. That's his main motivation. And he rallies the country to, to, to the, the cause of, 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 um, of preserving the Union. But as with any war, uh, mission creeps, right? Mission changes. Um, mm -hmm. And morale shifts. I mean, usually the first months of a war, uh, the country is whipped into an enthusiasm. You can see this historically through most wars, First World War, Second World War, uh, Vietnam War. Uh, and our own his country's history relied upon that, that kind of enthusiasm, which comes with, well, we're, we need to stand up for the country. There are things greater than ourselves, and those things are, the, are, are a national union. But then, as the toll of the war begins to be felt, 
it starts to um, the, the the morale starts to to uh, shift and um, and and you lose a lot of the people. And that was Lincoln's uh, situation at the beginning of 1862. Defeat after defeat would would, would put him in a place where uh, the country that was not was growing impatient. Um, you remember you having you having uh, farm boys being sent off to the south to to fight uh, to 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 see that. Um, uh, you know, Virginia stays in the same country as Maine. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an abstract idea to those men. Uh, they were they they were taken off the farm where they they were crucial for the family income. So there was a lot of frustration going on in the North, and morale was was certainly a victim of that. And then you had Lincoln's own personal struggles, his which actually has an interesting resonance with our present moment and the rise of the coronavirus. There was a lot of sickness in the country. Um, and much of it uh, could be actually laid at the foot, feet of the of the war effort. Um, and in in, in uh, Washington, the water supply was contaminated with typhoid. And and Lincoln's both Lincoln's boys, um, uh, actually Willie um, and Tad were were victims of that. And there's terrible stories of Lincoln going back and forth between one boy's bed and the other in the early parts of 1962, nursing to them as they lay feverishly. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, coping with this illness, and, and then w Willie perishes, and and Willie was his favorite favorite child. I mean, he was one I think that Lincoln saw a lot of himself in Willie, and and he was a favorite of all the White House staff. He was charming by all accounts. Um, uh, he invigorated a certain kind of uh, um, uh, enthusiasm in the White House during a time of war to see a child with such uh, such grace and and uh, humor. And they lost him in February. Um, and it's interesting for Lincoln for a couple of reasons. You talked about failure. Well, losing someone is a kind of failure too. Uh, not that he could have prevented it, but the, the idea that he was he too was uh, facing the loss that a lot of the country was, um, and and it was actually connected to the war effort. That was very powerful on Lincoln. And he didn't really have the time to grieve. Uh, the the word around the White House was that on I think it was on Thursday afternoons. You had to leave Lincoln alone because he preserved a certain time every Thursday afternoon where the door would close and he would sit and nurse his grief um, that he'd lost this boy. So, yeah, there's personal anguish. There was um, worry over the country. There was a war that was not going well. 1862 began really, really poorly for Lincoln. Um, if you're just joining us uh, in light of the coronavirus, we're continuing our series on presidential leadership in crisis, and I'm speaking with Todd Brewster, author of Lincoln's Gamble, the tumultuous six months that gave America the Emancipation Proclamation and changed the course of the Civil War. And we're talking specifically about crisis leadership under uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Todd, in my view, um, your book persuasively provides the bridge that gets us from the Lincoln you discussed previously in 1861 and the first half of 62 to the one many of us have come to know today. Um, and it begins with a carriage ride on the way to the funeral of uh, James Stanton, the infant son of cabinet member Edwin Stanton. Uh, talk about that for a moment. Yeah, I mean, so put yourself back into to that time for Lincoln. Um, we just talked about how he lost his own child. Um, and then the child of his secretary of war dies from the same illness. And Lincoln then is in a funeral procession 
going on the cobblestone streets of Georgetown out to the cemetery, the same cemetery he had gone to just a few months before to bury his own son. So there's a lot of resonance here with Lincoln's own losses. Um, and he knows that both boys, both these young children, had, had lost their lives in part because of the war effort and that there were young men who were dying in great numbers throughout the country uh, fighting this war. And he is in a carriage with uh, Gideon Wells, um, uh, who's Secretary of the Navy, with Seward, who's the Secretary of State, and he turns to them and he says that he's made up his mind he's going to free the slaves. And both Wells and Seward are astonished. They had no idea this was even brewing. Uh, Lincoln had made it clear from the outset, as I said before, that the war was about uh, preserving the Union. He refused to say that the end of slavery was a war aim. And here he was actually declaring the opposite. So what had happened in that time, what had made Lincoln decide at that moment that he was going to shift the war aim? And I think that there were a lot of things going on. Um, one was that the uh, uh, he'd always been aware of the moral, moral purpose uh, to uh, an end to slavery. He'd always hated slavery. He wasn't an abolitionist, but he'd always hated slavery. Uh, the other was, I think he had felt increasingly that uh, the war aims were, were had become kind of empty. Uh, a country that was trying to unite around um, uh, 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 the, uh, the um, unconstitutionality of secession um, was in a moment of abstraction that was hard to relate to the to the um, to the to the people on why that war aim was worth the, the price that they all were paying. And then I, I think that he felt that a, declaring a moral purpose to the war, one that he truly believed in, would energize the conflict in a way that would perhaps lead to its end. Or, and this was an very tantalizing piece of this history of the 1862, it would prompt the, the, um, the South to come to the negotiating table and end the war. Uh, he was willing to compensate, for instance, the slaveholders. Um, and he didn't even get put an, an end data when that compensation, uh, um, I'm sorry, he uh, didn't when, when he put an end data when, when uh, uh, um, uh, slavery would have to end. So he was willing to negotiate that as well. Um, so you have this sense that he was reaching out to the South in part. And in fact, when he issues the, the, um, uh, the word to the cabinet that he wants to declare an emancipation proclamation, his idea is to put it six months out from then, going to January 1, 1863. Why? Because he wanted to give the South another opportunity. One that is, it's one of those tantalizing what ifs of history. What if the South had accepted that olive branch? We would have had slavery a lot longer, probably, ironically. And the South would have um, uh, preserved uh, more of its integrity, I think, than it did uh, with the way that the war played out in the last two years. Is, is it this that point that uh, we also see a very, very different Lincoln uh, and I'm thinking specifically right now about uh, with his approach to the cabinet, because when he unveils the Emancipation Proclamation, he doesn't ask for their approval. Right. Right, he doesn't. He actually, what he asks for is more, uh, he says, I'm, I've made my mind up, I'm going to do it. Uh, don't try to change my mind, essentially. What he says, though, is he wants to know what their opinion is about, you know, the wording, the timing, how it's supposed to be implemented, and and Seward is very vocal in his response in that cabinet meeting, which is in July 1862. He says, I don't think you should issue it now. The, the, the Union Army was, was in retreat out of, out of Virginia. 
um, McClellan had been a total failure as the as the chief of the Army of the Potomac, and um, uh, uh, Seward felt that if he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, then it would look like it was a desperate move, uh, uh, engineered only by the failures of his army to to secure um, a victory on the battlefield. He says, "Let's wait till we have a victory, then you can do it. Then you can do it as the as the sort of exclamation point to a triumph." Um. I got to ask you, uh, in your in, in your view, the, did Antietam really fit that category, or, or? no, no, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, well, and turns and runs. I mean, it's it's. Um, I think it's one of those things where um, <laughs> uh, uh, he just decided to declare it a victory uh, and use it as that victory. What we're referring to uh, for your listeners is that uh, the the uh, what they call preliminary emancipation proclamation is finally issued. After the Battle of Antietam, which happens in September 1862, a terrifically um, uh, a painful battle, one where there's tremendous loss of blood, and um, uh, and really a kind of a draw more than anything else. It was not a victory for either side. But Lincoln issues the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in September, right after that battle. And I think his thinking is, it's enough of a victory that I can stand on it, and I if I issue it now... Perhaps I will get the South to uh, uh, turn under this threat of, of releasing the slaves that I will, um, I will get them to, to want to come to the negotiating table. You know, so from that point, I mean, in a sense, and this, and this, is, this is my take on it, um, uh, Lincoln uh, is reclaiming the reason the nation was founded thereby calling into question the Three-Fifths Compromise, the Missouri Compromise, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and the Dred Scott decision. Now, in your research, did he see it that way, this gargantuan undertaking, or was it simply a, a pragmatic decision to win the war and hold the Union together, as you, talk, you talked about earlier? Yeah, I, I think he saw it as monumental, but I think he saw it as monumental because it was uh, restoring uh, the integrity of the Declaration of Independence um, as a co-equal document to the Constitution in our founding. Now, most people would say the Constitution is where the founding is uh, resides. And he was a lawyer, Lincoln, so you'd think he would also say that legal document, the Constitution, represents our birthing. But Lincoln saw instead that the Declaration of Independence, which was, after all, just kind of a revolutionary manifesto, was not a legal document. He saw it as crucially important to the American uh, uh, idea, and he saw that as the true birthing of America. When he says four score and seven years ago, he's referring back to 1776, not to 1789, that famous speech at, at the, at, at the uh, um, cemetery in Gettysburg. He's saying that that was the point that our forefathers uh, conceived the new nation. And in doing so, he's reclaiming equality. Because remember, the Constitution at that point is a, is a slavery-endorsing document. So when he reaches back and claims um, equality, what he's doing is he's saying, uh-uh, the Constitution may say what it says, but it forgot. What well, didn't we forget? We know that. But <laughs> it, it doesn't retain an essential element of the American character which is, as you and I have discussed before, this tension between liberty and equality. Those are the two primary American ideals. They are inherently a, 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 um, opposite 
uh, but the reconciliation of the two of them is where the American nation really is at its best. And he was saying, we've, we've let one triumph over the other in a way that is essentially un-American. Let's reclaim the Declaration of Independence. So he saw, I don't think he saw the Emancipation Proclamation as, as a monumental document. He saw the Declaration as a monumental document. He referred to um, as, uh, the, um, the, the, as a picture uh, uh, with the Constitution being the uh, frame of the of the Declaration, which the Declaration was the um, was the primary document, or maybe I had that backwards. I think I had that backwards. The, de- the frame was the Declaration, meaning that you couldn't have the Constitution without the Declaration. Uh, now, now we everything you just said, we know this wasn't um, Lincoln's um, official position in 1861, but could one posit that in the changing trajectory of the Civil War, Lincoln's crisis leadership style was also willing to accept the unattended consequences of the actions he created or changed. And his leadership style was able to accept that how he had changed. Well, the, the, that he created this, he created this new trajectory, and was he comfortable with the possibility of those unintended consequences? Ah, uh, I, I think he felt that he had to be. Um. This is where Lincoln's courage comes through, and it's courage that is um, uh, is not instinctive. Um, it's um, he makes a decision to be courageous. Uh, uh, all during that six months, he's waffling back and forth. Is he actually going to issue the Emancipation Proclamation? Is he really going to to um, liberate the, the slaves? Um, uh, Frederick Douglass doesn't think he's going to go through with it right up to, to um, uh, New Year's Eve. He believes that uh, Lincoln's going to sort of cut and run on the subject. So Lincoln is, and you'll see Lincoln's actions during those six months, sometimes he denies that he's actually considering an emancipation proclamation before the preliminary one in September of 1862. But he he realizes as he's, you know, he's a, he was an extremely thoughtful and analytic uh, I, I possessed of an extremely thoughtful and analytic mind. He understood they were constitutional questions to an executive order, which is essentially what it was. That was seizing property, which is essentially what it was. Our, our property, that was the term. <laughs> yeah. But he decided that there was one way he could do that, and that was as commander-in-chief of the armed forces, in other words, as a, an act of war. But even then he had to think to himself, well, an what act if- of rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, exactly. That was the other issue, though, Brian, because he he said, if I use if I say that, that that this is consistent with the laws of war, then I've got to acknowledge this is a war. And he didn't refuse to see it as a war. He thought it was a rebellion, a rebellion being something that is a domestic uh, turbulence that needs to be put down, not a war with another uh, recognized state. So he had he saw all these issues. Uh, there were constitutional issues. There were issues also about what would happen when the slaves were freed. Would they would it end up being um uh, just wholesale carnage. I mean, would the slave owners uh, do a kind of scorched earth policy and kill all the slaves before they could be free? Would the slave, freed slaves turn on the, their owners and create uh, mayhem by, by slaughtering the, the, uh, the slave-owning population? Um, would the slaves actually fight for the Union? Or would their loyalty to the South, ironically enough, retain... Uh, put them in a position where they wanted to uh, fight for the uh, Confederacy. There were people in the Confederacy who believed that that would happen. So there were a lot of things, and there was no there were no polling back then either. By uh, you know, you couldn't go to the North and say, "Okay, if I do this action, what do you think?" 
will you be will you be behind me or not? That didn't happen. He had to. He had. He was. You know, uh, uh, flying without instruments, as they say. So I, I think it was courageous in the end because he understood all the consequences that could happen, and decided that it was worth the gamble. You know, I raised that last question in part because, and you just sort of touched on it. I'd like to have you expand. I mean, obviously Lincoln was vilified by the Confederacy, but the North wasn't necessarily happy with this new trajectory, and then an abolitionist didn't think he was going far enough. Well, there were remember the North was not a, a uniform uh, uh, a block on the issue of sla- slavery by any means. Uh, yes, there were plenty of abolitionists who thought Lincoln was. Um, uh, disingenuous, uh, that Lincoln was, um, uh, uh, um, uh, his sympathies were with the South in, at, at heart. Um, then there were plenty of people who saw him as a closet abolitionist, um, who, um, and they resented that. Remember, there, was, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm in the North uh, for the end of slavery in some parts. I mean, the, the, the parts of Pennsylvania, parts of Ohio, uh, certainly Missouri, these were states where there was a, a, a lot of fear of what would happen if uh, the slaves were freed. There was, there was fear that they'd come up the Mississippi and take all the jobs from the from the um, from the white workers and laborers in in the Midwest. Uh, so he, you know, he knew that some of the population would be furious with him for changing the war aims, but he did it anyway. It's, it's, it's really easy, I guess popular in, in, our, in our current public discourse to oversimplify leadership, especially in hindsight. But, you know, one of the things, um, uh, in particular reading um, Lincoln's Gamble, not to give you another uh, 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 prop for that, for that book, but it was a great book. Um, you know, in that six-month period, one of the things that was fascinating, you know, in August of 62, Lincoln, as you sort of alluded to, writes this letter to Horace Greeley, responds, if I could free half the slaves, some, all, I would do it to keep the union together. And then not long after that, with the Emancipation Proclamation in his just drawer, he basically tells black leaders, if it, was, if it wasn't for your race, we wouldn't be having this war. He blames it on How do you account for this? <laughs> this seems like a total um, uh, contradiction, given the fact this guy's got the Emancipation Proclamation is drawer at the same time. It's a complete contradiction, and I think that goes to the heart of how insecure he was about it all. How how uh, how frustrated he was. Um, uh, I I think there was part of that thought. Well, gee, everybody should. If we just, you know, he was also working on the colonization schemes, um, where he was looking to send uh, the freed blacks out of the country and sort of start over again. Look, I mean, I don't think that Lincoln, Lincoln was, uh, Lincoln was an abolitionist, that he wanted, in this sense, he wanted an end to slavery. But he didn't believe in the equality of the races. He believed in the equality of the opportunity for the races that human beings should be treated like human beings. But he would not be someone we would, whose ideas we would we'd embrace in, in, our, in our own time. Of course, it's always dangerous to pull somebody out of their time and put them in, in into other uh, another period, uh, Brian. Uh, there's it's actually, I, I think there's three things I thought about this right before we we went on that I would say about the notion of leadership for Lincoln at this point. One is the loneliness of it, right? I mean, he is. We talked about this. He goes. He doesn't ask the cabinet 
what to do. He's he wants to make that decision finally himself, and he waffles on it. The second one is to know thyself. I think Lincoln learns a lot about himself in that six months, and he becomes the president, as you said. He becomes the president we know of as a great leader. He wasn't. If if if, if his presidency had ended in 1862, we would not have Lincoln on the penny and the $5 bill. And the third one is to understand that there are no perfect solutions. And he becomes extremely humble. He starts talking much more about the power of God and fate. He was not a religious man. He was, if anything, a kind of, um, um, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of deist, as the founders were. He believed in some kind of force that started the, uh, the world, but did not, you know, and he attended church sort of somewhat reluctantly, I think. Um, but he began to believe much more in the power of fate, in the power of God, um, in those six months. And in, the, and in that time, reduced the sense of hubris that I think comes to some people as they achieve uh, positions of such power. And it's, ironically, it's those who understand the limits of their power who become the greatest leaders. From from the perspective of the Oval Office, as you touched on it a couple of times, and I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to it. Given that time, I mean, we're, we're, let's let's keep Lincoln in 1862. In that yeah. time, or even 1860, would it have been possible for one to be an avowed abolitionist and be president of the United States? I don't think so, and I think Seward proved that. Seward was the favorite going into the convention. You know, he's like. But he had said some pretty impertinent things when it came to uh, offending, um, uh, uh, you know, the um, uh, population that did not want to move on on abolition, and and he was uh, branded by that, and uh, and he was a bit of a hothead, Seward. So he had he had a reputation for sort of uh, principle above um, uh, above politics, but he he didn't get the nomination. Lincoln got it, and I think that was true. Uh, look, abolitionists were thought of as, uh, remember a lot of the abolitionist movement had been uh, put forward by very deeply religious communities, um, and there was a branding of, of abolitionists as kind of religious fanatics, um, a belief that they were moralist and self-righteous. Um, uh, it wasn't a compliment to be called an abolitionist in most parts of the United States in that time. And I think if Lincoln had gone around and had professed himself to be an abolitionist, I think he would have carried a lot of disfavor. Uh, you know, one of my takeaways from, 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 Link, from Lincoln's gamble, and I think you sort of touched on this as well, but I, I want to bring it up and have you expand on it, is that we really can only stand, understand Lincoln's leadership in crisis by understanding the journey, and that's the only way we can truly appreciate the outcome. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think that if you stop Lincoln anywhere along the way there, you see someone who's not quite complete. Um, I mentioned before that we look to, we look to people to grow in office. Uh, sometimes we've elected people that are, you know, we wonder if they're up to it and then we watch them grow in office. Um, I think Lincoln grew in office. I, I think he was a pretty substantial figure to begin with. So self-taught, you know, well-read, very thoughtful, great debater, um, and moral person. Probably the best speechwriter we ever had. <laughs> oh, by certainly the best speechwriter we ever had. 
One of the best writers we've ever made, actually, yeah. independent of whether it had to do with speeches or politics. One of the best writers. Um, I, I, but I, I think we watch him grow. And that growth, to see that journey is part of it. I think it's also appealing to us, Brian, because I think it tells us uh, we, we can relate to that. We understand that he, too, was imperfect, that he developed and grew. I mentioned this at the beginning of the, of the, of the, of the book, that um, Du Bois referred to, um, uh, to, to Lincoln as imperfect, but, but we wouldn't have wanted him to be perfect, and he wouldn't have been understandable, right? And, we, and, and in seeing him as imperfect, we, see, we can identify ourselves and see that maybe we too can grow. We all find ourselves, um, if we're honest, um, um, uh, morally uh, uh, weak at various moments. Um, we, know, we all know if we're honest that we make mistakes, that we're not up to certain tasks, that we wish we'd done things differently. And to see somebody grow and develop, that's the redeeming part of the Lincoln story. Uh, that's the redeeming part of life is to see yourself mature with wisdom Right, so I think that that's that's what Lincoln gave us. He gave us a story of redemption, and then the fact that he dies on Easter weekend—I mean—is is so poetic, right? I mean, it's um, shot uh, on Good Friday. Oh my God! Yeah, you know, you he, mentioned the boys. He, I, I want to go to that for just a second. Um, uh, you mentioned the boys, and 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 the irony is, it's it's sort of antithetical to how we look at people now because. In that passage, it seemed to me Du Bois' appreciation for Lincoln was rooted in Lincoln's imperfections rather than his accomplishments. Exactly. Exactly, it was. I think Du Bois would have been suspicious, rightfully so, of the kind of um, mythic quality that Lincoln was held up to in the years, well, sort of, uh, particularly the beginning part of the 20th century when we had a lot of hagiography hagi about, about Lincoln and he was um, held up to be a... a um, uh, a martyr. Uh, he was a martyr uh, to a cause that was very important for the American uh, for American um, idea. Uh, but um, I think to recognize him as human, which is really what what that six months spoke to uh, for me was all about. Um, to recognize him as human is to see uh, the redeeming parts of leadership, which to me is that that it's not that you're superhuman, but that you're human. And that you were honest, and that you you grow and develop, and that's what Lincoln showed us in office. And he he grew a nation with him. I want to thank my guest, author Todd Brewster. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron B Y R O N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public rally at their studios. The public rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. Remember the words of Martin Luther King Jr., we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public rally, I'm... Byron Williams.